0: Acts 9, starting in verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that when he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now rise up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they saw no one. And Saul got up off the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. And now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much harm he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and he laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me, that is Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he rose up and was baptized and he took food and was strengthened. And for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. Bow with me one more time. Jesus, thank you for this evening. Thank you for tonight. I pray that you would fill this room with the presence of your Holy Spirit, that this would be a time of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, that you would convict us that you would convince us that you would commune with us that you would encourage us whatever it is that your people need lord we trust you to speak clearly and i pray that people's people would have a soft heart to receive what it is that you have to say and submit or be be built up to rejoice to be encouraged lord may this be a night that we grow in our affection for you may we learn from your word this evening we trust you with all things we love you king jesus It's in your name that we pray amen so acts has been so far one continual examination of the gospel being persecuted and yet proliferating abounding uh, coming against all of the odds and arising victorious there's been beatings there's been threats there's been intimidation there's been jail time There's been actual rulers saying you need to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, and there's been quiet and kind disobedience to that rule. Stephen has been killed in chapter 7. The disciples in Jerusalem have fled, but the gospel has only continued to grow more and more and more. Everywhere that the disciples go, they continue to speak in the name of Jesus Christ, and they continue to get into hot water, and they continue to speak in the name of Jesus Christ. They will not be quiet about it. The Lord is building his church. He is building up his kingdom, and he's doing it in a way that does not make sense to us, and something that I come back to again and again and again is, is imploring people, myself included, to remember to trust in Jesus, to not, to not be informed by the circumstances that. That, are, that surround us. It would be really easy, you know. And this text is just it's just it really drives it home. You look around Portland, you know, and I, I I look around Portland a lot. I'm I'm from here, and I and I, I run a lot, and so I'm I'm on my two feet, going through all these different parts of the city for hours on end, and I just see so much death and addiction. I ran by a guy the other morning. I was running here. And there was a guy who I, th- I think he was smoking fentanyl right in the middle of the street on 39th in Belmont. And he had the pipe to his mouth and he made eye, cont- eye contact with me and just went, hey, hey. and just kept smoking. And I, and, I, and I waved to him and we had a moment. And, and this is just the city that we live in, and it would be really easy to look at what's going on and get discouraged. It would be really easy to look, at, to look around and go, God, you're not moving. God, you're not paying attention. God, you're impotent. God, you're careless. God, you're unable. God, you're weak. It's easy to think that, it's easy to feel that, and that's a lie from hell. And and the book of Acts is a perfectly good example and demonstration on how the circumstances around us do not prove that God is not working. The circumstances around us cause us to have faith that he is despite what we see, despite our own logic, despite our own intellect, despite our own ingenuity. The spirit of God is at work, Jesus is king, and he has employed us to proclaim his gospel to the world. The work is not, we're, we're not on the Titanic sinking. This isn't a lost cause. This isn't a doomed endeavor. Jesus is still king and despite all of the odds, the gospel is continuing to move forward. It's made its way around almost all of the, the world and here the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, saves the church's most ardent <laughs> Angry persecutor, Saul of Tarsus. We were first introduced to Saul, you'll remember, in chapter 7 when Stephen was killed. There was a young man standing there, taking the garments of the men who were throwing rocks at Stephen, and this was Saul. Chapter 7, verse 58. Chapter 8, verse 1, now Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. Hearty agreement. The word there in Greek means that not only did Saul approve of it, but he actually got, so he actually got pleasure from it. He didn't just obje- objectively say, like, that's a good idea. He actually took pleasure. It actually was something that gave him some sort of joy that Stephen was killed. And this is... This is Saul of Tarsus, who is now breathing threats, verse chapter 9, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, going to the high priest, asked for letters from him to the synagogues, for the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul is, the one thing that's that's interesting to consider about Saul is just, what a boss he was. I mean, he was the best of the best. He was the golden boy of the Pharisees. He was a Roman citizen. He was, a, he was, he was highly educated. A lot of scholars put him in the category of, of earning the equivalent of two PhDs. He was born in Tarsus, which was, it's right on the, it's, it's in modern day Turkey, right on the border, and it was a cosmopolitan city. There was three great universities in, in those days. One was in Athens, one was in Alexandria, and one was in Tarsus. Tarsus was a cosmopolitan place. It was was cutting edge. It was big time. It was New York. There was a lot of economy. There was a lot of trading. There was a lot of business going on. There was people from all different cultures. It was a big to-do town. And Saul was born and raised there. He became a tradesman at a young age. He became a tent maker. He would weave weave animal fur and, and leather to make tense and then when about the, probably the time of 12 or 13 years old he went to jerusalem where he learned at the feet of gamaliel and gamaliel was a was a teacher who was the most revered the most respected the most sought after teacher that there was it was actually said of him that he was the beauty of the law meaning that when gamaliel taught listening to him listening to him speak was a thing of immense beauty he was the beauty of the law this is this is saul he's educated He's impressive, he's influential, he's a leader, he's an up-and-coming leader, he's got a lot of tenacity, he's got a lot of velocity behind him, he's young, he's full of testosterone, and he's ready to get things done. And the thing that he's doing is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus. And this term for breathing, it's very interesting, it doesn't mean to exhale, it actually means to inhale which is really wild if you, if you think about it. The, the very energy that he took into his body, what kept him going was this desire. What was his goal, his objective, the thing that he had his, his sights set to achieve? Kill Christians, imprison them, find them, bind them, and put them in jail, and if they die, great. That's great, even better. This was the very breath, the very energy that kept Saul going, threatening and murdering and imprisoning Christians. And it's, it's noteworthy because Paul could have done anything. You know, Paul could have been teaching anywhere. He could have had, a, he could have had fans. He could have been influential at any synagogue, any place. He, he, he doesn't even have to apply. He's a natural shoe-in. But the name of Jesus Christ is so powerful that the most erudite, promising, sophisticated, and educated young man of the Pharisees thought it was worth his while to not only persecute Christians within Jerusalem, but actually chase them outside of Jerusalem, even all the way to places like Damascus. Damascus is 160 miles north of Jerusalem, and it's not easy to get around in those days, but he was so full of hatred and vitriol that it was worth his time, it was worth his while. All of his education, all of his promise, all of his prestige, everything he had going for him, that's what he chose to do. That's what he chose to spend his time trying to achieve, was the killing of Christians because the name of Jesus is powerful. I'd like to sit down with Saul, who in chapter 13 is called Paul. He becomes the Apostle Paul. I'd love to sit down with him one day and ask him if, if, if he even realized, Like, did you even know why you hated Christians so much, or did you just have this hatred that you didn't know how to explain, but you had it and you moved with it? Gamaliel's own teacher, or Paul's own teacher, Gamaliel, remember in chapter five of Acts, the Christian movement is gaining momentum and speed and popularity, and the Pharisees are, are hung up on it and they want it to stop. And Gamaliel pipes, pipes up, he, he speaks up and he said, remember, this is the most influential dude in the room. He speaks up and he says, listen, leave these guys alone. Remember, there was Theodos and then there was Judas. Those guys rose up, they had a following, but then they were killed, their following dispersed. No muss, no fuss, no big deal. And the same thing will happen here. Or, if this is actually a movement of God, then you won't be able to overthrow it and you may actually find yourself fighting against God himself. Don't go against this movement. It will, it, will, it will fizzle out on its own or there's nothing you can do because it's a movement of God. And Saul said, thanks, no thanks, and he persecuted Christianity, he persecuted Jesus, and he found himself fighting against God persecutes them even past Jerusalem, all the way to Damascus, 160 miles north, so that if he found any belonging to the way, verse two, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Can you imagine? You know, I've got a wife, i have got have got a, I've got a six-month-old daughter, and if a man came to my door to put me and my wife in prison, I mean, I don't, I, I and I, I hope this never comes to North America, but I don't. I will, I guess we'll find out if I'm capable of murder at that point I mean this is like this is really this is really savage stuff this is really serious Saul's going door-to-door imprisoning men and women I mean just imagine that dragging women out of their home dragging dragging men out of their home to put them in prison because they believe in King Jesus they call on the name of Jesus This is the type of personality this guy was. This is how insane this guy was. This is the level of hatred that this guy has. It's referred to, the the Christian movement is referred to as the way, and most, most commentators and scholars agree that that was probably a sarcastic title because Christians believe that Jesus was the way, the only way, this dead Jew, this dead criminal, We beat him up, we mutilated him beyond recognition, we stuck him on a cross and he died. That's your savior? (laughs) It was sarcastic, it was jeering, it was supposed to be a pejorative term, insulting. These people who belong to the way. And so as he was traveling, verse three, it happened that when he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him Saul Saul why are you persecuting me so we we have this story of Saul we have the story of his conversion in real time and then we have a retelling of it in acts chapter 22 and in acts chapter 26 Paul gives his testimony in acts chapter 26 he gives us a detail that we don't have here he says that the light that shone was brighter than the light of the sun that that ethereal and ephemeral no man's land between heaven and earth broke open and a light shined forth on Saul and he fell into the dust. But I wonder this light that was brighter than the sun. I mean, imagine that. Have you ever stared at the sun on a bright day? You can't, you can't do it. The God who ignites the sun is far brighter than the sun itself. But I, I can't help but wonder what, what actually knocked Saul to the ground. Was it fear? Was it the light? Did he hear something? I mean, a light that bright, you might just fall to the ground when that happens. And, and I think that that might have been like the immediate cause of it. But what knocked Saul to the ground was the resurrected Christ himself. Remember in, in John, oh my gosh, I love this. John chapter 18. This is, this is so gangster, this is the Jesus that I worship. He's not scared, he knows that the, that the Romans are coming for him, he knows the temple police are coming for him, he's, on, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's not hiding, he, know that, he knows that Judas is on his way to betray him, he's at the top of the mountain, he can see 900 to 1,000 men coming up the mountain, no doubt carrying torches, and he doesn't run, he doesn't hide. This is our Jesus, this is our king. And then when they get there, Jesus steps forth. He steps into that gap. The gap between the Romans, the gap between his, his 11 other followers, his 11 disciples, Jesus steps in the gap because he's a man, because he's our king, because he's leading by example. But then just to make sure that these guys actually know what they're doing, he says to them, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And they all fall down. And when, when, we, when we studied that in John 18, I, I went into detail about just how bad Roman soldiers were. They don't fall down on the ground, let alone six to 900 of them, but Jesus at a word puts them on their rear end. And the human heart is wicked and deceitful above all else. They still get up and they put him in chains because he let them, because he let them. Paul falls on the ground because he came up against the real God of the universe. Not some made-up fantasy that he conceptualized in his own brain that can be kept happy and predictable with ritual and sacrifice and performance. This is the real God of the universe. And some, some might say, you know, there's these verses like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And you read all through the Old Testament, all through the scriptures, when people come in contact with God himself, what do they always do? They fall down. They get freaked out. They're scared. And people might say, well, no, if, you know, if God is a God of love and benevolence and kindness and grace and mercy, why, you know, why, why be scared of him? That doesn't make any sense. And fair enough, um, I think that when you come into contact with the God of the universe, and let's just say he's a, he's a nice person. He is kind. He is benevolent. Jesus was described as one who wouldn't put out a smoldering wick. But this is still the almighty God of the cosmos. I was, I was thinking about this. I was, I was walking here this morning from home. And it was kind of a sunny day. And I was look, and, I was pr- and I was praying about the text from this morning. And I was praying about the text for tonight. And I was looking up at the sky. And at the trees. And at the clouds moving. And I was thinking, man all of this the molecules in our body the fact that the earth is spinning these clouds that are that are that are that are roaming across the sky the sun that's, that's that's in the sky all of this God is holding it together he's that's how big he is he's not malevolent and mean and vindictive and cruel and evil but he's still terrifying because he's God he's huge he's and he's absol- we are absolutely helpless before him he could do anything that he wanted with us anything he chose to send his son to die on the cross to save us from our sins he's that good but he's still god and saul came up against him and he fell on the ground i was thinking i was thinking about this you know i i'm not even i'm not even afraid of heights i was a i was an architectural metal and glass worker for 10 years i worked up in the air I'm not afraid of heights, but there's still something about heights, you know, because heights don't, they don't have any mercy. I remember this one time, I, I've been talking a lot about Peru lately, and I don't, I don't know why, but I, re, I remember when I was in Peru, I was walking, I was on my way to this town called Aguas Calientes, and I was in the jungle, and I was walking on this train track, and there was a portion of the train track where it went, it, it crossed over a bridge, and it was over a body of water, and I don't, I don't know how far down it was. 800 feet, 1,000 feet, I don't even remember, but it was far enough to die. And the, bri- the, the the trusses were about 18 inches wide and they're about 18 inches apart. So, I mean, you could easily just sort of do this number and step on them, but because it was so high in the air, my knees started to wobble and I started to lose my balance. And I was, I was doing this action, more than anything. And I was thinking about that. I was like, that's what it's, that's what it's like because you're absolutely helpless against the heights. They they're, they're very unforgiving. You fall, you have no second chance. That's it, you're dead. And so it's scary. We're helpless against that height. You know, We're helpless against the heights. And God is not a long drop to your death, but he is huge. He's omnipotent. He literally holds the sun in place. Hebrews 1 tells us that he holds up the entire universe by the word of his power and that God condescended and got in Saul's face and he fell to the ground because there's nothing that Saul had. There's nothing that he could do. Remember, he writes his resume in Philippians chapter three. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was so zealous I was persecuting the church according to the law. I was blameless. He, he had all that, but before Almighty God, he had nothing. Have you experienced that? The magnitude of God how big he is, how scary he is, and at the same time, he loves you. The same way when, my little, when, I, when I get up in the morning and my little girl rolls over and smiles at me, ugh, he, he loves you, he loves you. Do you ever stop and think about that? Do you remind yourself about that throughout the day? He loves you so much, he'll knock you to the ground to get you to pay attention to what you're doing wrong. The sky breaks open, there is a light, and the voice of Jesus comes out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? John fifteen twenty five. Jesus himself said, they hated me without any cause. But now Jesus shows up and he asks, why? What is your cause? What are you doing? And he says, why are you persecuting me? You know, I mean, talk about a love relationship. You, yeah, I'm just a typical dude. You mess with my wife, you mess with me. You mess with my daughter, you mess with me, you mess with me, and you mess with my wife. She's far scarier than I am. She'll cut somebody. She'll do it. That's why I married her. I kind of liked that. Jesus loves his kids so much. When you mess with his kids, you're messing with him. He takes that personally. He sees it. If you're here tonight and you've been hurt, if you're here tonight and you've been lied to, Abused neglected whatever it might be Jesus feels that if you're his child He feels that and if you're not his child if you haven't been born again if you haven't confessed your sins If you don't believe that he's God in the flesh if you don't even think you need a Savior if you don't think you need Forgiveness, I would implore you to reconsider look at how awesome Jesus is and sign up for him being your boss the gospel is available for everybody, every tongue, every tribe, and every nation, even somebody as hateful and malevolent as Saul of Tarsus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You're messing with my kids. And the truth of the matter is, and we've seen this throughout Acts so far, its pinnacle was in Stephen. If Stephen right? If Stephen had just kept his mouth shut about Jesus, they wouldn't have killed him. Ironically, if the apostle Paul later in his life had kept his mouth shut about Jesus, they wouldn't have cut his head off. They wouldn't have crucified Peter upside down. They would, the world would leave us alone if we stopped talking about Jesus. Nobody in Portland's got any beef with me. Ian Cornell, the glazer, the glass worker, the guy on the Harley that, that runs a lot. No one's got any beef with that guy. But as soon as I say Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and I follow him and him alone, and he is the only way to salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to the Father but by him. The world hates that. Saul hated it so much. He's traveling 160 miles north to kill, imprison Christians. Why are you persecuting me? They they persecute Jesus. They persecute people who preach Jesus. They persecute people who believe in Jesus. They persecute people who call on the name of Jesus. And my prayer is that we would not shut up, but we would in love and in respect and in reverence continue even at risk to our own selves to tell people about the love that Jesus has for them. In Galatians 6:17 later and later in Paul's life he says I bear in my body the marks of Christ and what he means by that is every whipping every beating every insult all of that stuff that happened to me it happened because they were doing it to Jesus but I was in front of them so they took it out on so they took it out on him why why are you persecuting me verse 5 and he said who are you lord and Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. You know, I, I wonder, I, I wonder here, and I and, and I bring this up because I, I, I wonder I wonder for you, I wonder for Saul. I, I, I certainly this is this is true of me. I think that Saul was I think that Saul was was struck by Jesus. I think that whenever Stephen was killed, and Saul was there acting like a human coat hanger, and Stephen if he's a bad man, I mean, he died so well. He prayed for the people that were killing him. He prayed that this sin would not be held against them. He was smiling, his face was shining. It says his face was like an angel. I don't exactly know what that means, but he looked good <laughs> while he was getting pummeled to death with rocks. That sticks with a guy, you know? And I think that Saul was bugged. I think that Saul was getting flicked in the heart by Jesus because, again, later whenever he's retelling his testimony, he says in, John, or in Acts chapter 26 that he gets knocked to the ground. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the pricks or it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And what that means is, it's it's agrarian it's agrarian language. If you are a farmer, if you're if you're a shepherd, or if you're a, a goat herder, or something like that, you've got a stick that's got a little barb on it, or a or a it's like a little barb is probably the right word. It's a little little dagger, a little ouch on the end of it. And if an animal's getting out of, out of line, it, you know, it didn't hurt him that bad, but it was a, it was a, little, it was a little smack in the, in, in the tush, a little smack in the belly to get back on track, to get back. And an animal could, if it wanted to, fight against that. You give the goat the goat, and it kicks back. And you give it the goat again, and it kicks back, and you give it the goat again. And I think that this was happening in Saul's life. And it's, you know, there's, there's maybe some conjecture here, but it, it, just, it just makes sense. After watching Stephen die the way that he did, that you would think about that at the end of the day. Who is this Jesus guy? What are these, what, these people of the way? You know, they're quite busy. And they're quite tough. Every time we stomp on them, they just grow. What's with these people? Why won't they shut up about this Jesus guy? I think he was bugged. And Jesus said it, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. He's, he's kicking against the prodding that Jesus is giving him in his heart. And I, and I bring that up because I wonder if there's anybody here tonight who's experiencing that or if you have experienced that. That is, that is my life story. I knew Jesus was on my case for years. And like Jonah, I ran and I ran and I ran. And I, I finally ended up bleeding from the face in the back of the cop car. And I was like, all right, you got me. I'm done. I'm done it's hard for you to kick against the goats which is awesome because it means that Jesus was chasing him and didn't give up chasing him and didn't didn't give up who are you Lord he says Jesus whom you are persecuting I love that he uses the name given to him he doesn't say I'm the Alpha and the Omega he doesn't say I'm the God of the universe he doesn't say I am the Lord he could have said any one of those things because Jesus is God but he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the name given him in Luke chapter 2. But rise up, go into the city, and what you're going to do, you'll find out. And so the men who traveled with him, verse 7, stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing the no one. This is interesting. So they heard the voice, but they saw no one. Cast an eye real quick down at verse 17. Ananias departed. He entered the house. He laid his hands on, on Saul and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me, that is, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming. Saul's like, well, how did you hear about that? I haven't been, I haven't been running around telling anybody about that. How did you know? The Jesus who appeared to you, Luke, in, uh, verse 27 Luke writes, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. We'll consider this next week. And recounted to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. Saul saw Jesus. Saul heard Jesus. The guys that were around him saw something. They heard something, but they didn't know what it was. They didn't know who it was. And when the Lord speaks, for some people it is the word of truth, it is, it is God communicating to us. This is, this is the Bible, the Lord communicating to us. Other people hear the voice of the Lord and it's just noise. It's unintelligible, it's inarticulate, we don't understand it, we don't know it. The things of the spirit are not discernible, they're not apprehended by people who are of the flesh. Paul would later go on to write in Corinthians. And my hope and my prayer is, if <laughs> anybody who's coming to the door of hope, and I know, guys, this has been the case. They, they went to church week after week. One of, my, one of my good friends, Ben, went to skate church for seven years. He sat through seven years of Paul Anderson and Dave Smith and all the other guys preaching the gospel, and he sat there with his Mountain Dew can, and he spun the wheels on his skateboard, and he picked his nose, and he wasn't paying attention. Seven years, blah, 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 blah. And finally, one day, Ben Stormont, Snapped out of it. He snapped out of it. He heard the Lord saying, Ben, come here. You're my boy. That's my prayer. Whoever was with Saul saw something, they heard something, but Saul saw Jesus, Saul heard Jesus. Verse eight, so Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drink. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the trajectory of your life? Is this what happened to you? You're going going someplace. You've got a career. You've got an idea. You've got a goal. You've got an ambition. You've got your sights set on something, and the Lord comes in and just turns the tables over, spills everything on the ground. Saul, all of a sudden, has no job. He has no friends. He has been He's been chest-pumped by the God of the universe. He's been gut-checked by Jesus himself, saying, Saul, wake up. Saul, what are you doing? Saul, you're persecuting me. His mind is unraveling, and then his eyesight is taken away for three days. He goes into Damascus, a town that he was gonna start arresting people, and now he's living with a Christian. Has your life ever been turned upside down like that? Mine has. Do you trust Jesus when that happens? It's, It's really hard to do, I know. I know, but it's lessons like this. It's verses like this. It's it's stories like this that remind us to trust Jesus when everything looks weird and upside down and backwards and inside out and turned around. Do you trust Jesus? He's doing something. He's not malevolent. He is paying attention. He has not forgotten about you. Saul couldn't see. He didn't eat. There was no distractions. And he was all of a sudden in the home of somebody who was just an enemy of his So verse 10, now there is a disciple at Damascus named Ananias and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. It's kind of like 2 Samuel chapter 3, Samuel in bed. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas. So, So Saul is in the house of this guy named Judas, unfortunate name but very popular back in the day. For a man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. So a man who Saul was seeking to arrest and kill is at home minding his own business named Ananias And the voice of the Lord. Here's another example of just being obedient to what the Lord tells us to do. You want me to go to that guy's house and find that dude? I've heard about Saul. I know who that guy is. I don't want to have anything to do with him. Rise up, go to the street called Straight, inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. It's cool. You can, I've never been there, but you can get online and you can Google the street called Straight. It's still there to this very day. It's three miles long. It runs east and west. Verse 13. But Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, about how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem, and that he has authority from the chief, chief priests to bind all who call on your name. He's probably heard. There's persecution in Jerusalem. Stephen is killed. Mass exodus. People flew, flew they they fled from the persecution. And some of them, no doubt, made their way up into Damascus, and they've told this guy Ananias, Stephen was killed. There's a persecution that's happening, and it's being led by this guy named Saul. If you see them, if you see him, hide. And the Lord says, Go find him. Do we trust the Lord? It's so hard when the Lord does this, right? But do we trust him? This is the first time in Scripture that Christians are called saints i know how much harm he has done to your saints who are in jerusalem and he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name to call on your name that is to believe that salvation is in jesus christ alone we saw this in chapter 2 verse 21 which was a quote from joel chapter 2 which says everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved this is to call on your name we learn from Paul's retelling of this story in chapter 22 that Ananias actually says to Saul, Rise up, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. And Saul himself in Acts chapter 16 tells a man, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the name. Saul himself saved and behaved, turns around, looks at a non believer, and says, You want to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. The Lord said to him, verse 15, go. I know you're scared, but go, for he is my chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And we will see all three of those things happen throughout the book of Acts. The uh, apostle Paul will go to the Gentiles and to kings and to the children of Israel. Verse 16, here's a something you wanna see on a job application. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. You know, Paul suffered. The man who caused so much suffering suffered more than anyone else in his day. Second Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, Saul writes these words. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beatings without number, in frequent danger of death, five times I received from the Jews the 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, and once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, in danger from robbers, in dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the desolate places, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brothers. I have been in labor and hardship and many sleepless nights in starvation and thirst, often hungry and cold and without enough clothing. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of the concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is made to stumble without my burning concern? Saul suffered. And you know, when you see Jesus, in your mind's eye, you read the gospels, you read the scriptures, you see his life, you see his mercy, you see his grace, you see how rad he was. You see him standing between his men and absolute chaos. They were coming to arrest him. They were coming to murder him. He did not hide, he did not argue, he did not fight. He told Peter, put your sword away, bro. Stop it. He stood forward. He came forth. They were looking for him. He didn't back up. He didn't hide. He stepped forward. That Jesus, mutilated on a cross, dying for our sins. I want to be a person who is willing to suffer more because I understand more how much Christ has suffered for me. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. This is a this is a reality that Paul knew very deeply. He understood this very well. He he was willing to suffer, and he did suffer. And hopefully, you know, hopefully this never happens. I, I have, I have, I have men in my life who have gray in their hair, and they, you know, they tell me, "Ian, you better be, you better be serious, you better be legit." Portland's turning. Portland's getting more intense. The hatred for Christianity is getting louder. Chris, hatred for Christianity is becoming more in the forefront. Hatred for Christianity is getting more vocal. It's getting more prevalent. It's basically ubiquitous at this point. The hatred for Christianity is coming for you, and you're the guy that stands up in front of everybody and talks about Jesus. What if they come for you? What if they come for your daughter? What if they come for your wife? <laughs> All right. You know, I don't know. I, that sucks. But my prayer is that I understand this Jesus so much that like my Jesus, and that you, like your Jesus, when, if that time comes, God forbid, but if that time comes, we will be the people who step forward. Not lifting up swords, not lifting up AR-15s, not, not bulwarking ourselves against the world and hiding in underground bunkers and keeping corn and, and canned food and all the rest and, and giving the finger to the enemy who's out there, but that we would, that we would love them like Stephen, that we would love them like Jesus. That's a supernatural miracle to be able to do that. First Peter says that if you're persecuted for the name of Jesus, his spirit is resting upon you. I I want that. Do you want that? I want that. This persecutor of the church, this absolute madman, this violent, hateful, spiteful person, Saul, even he was not beyond God's grace and he completely turned around. He went from persecuting Christians to being persecuted as a Christian. That is how powerful Jesus is. Amen? So verse 17. So Ananias got up. He departed, and he entered the house, and he laid his hands on him, and he said, Brother Saul, what a moment. Saul was coming to Damascus, to persecute, to arrest, to jail, and even kill guys like Ananias. And Ananias puts his hands on Saul and says, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me. That is Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul is staying with a Christian named Judas. Now he's letting another Christian lay his hands on him. And it was Saul's plan to lay his hands on Christians in a very different way right? Saul's goal was to lay his hands on Christians to put them in jail, and now Christians are laying their hands on him re- re- so that he can receive his sight and receive the Holy Spirit. They're welcoming, him. They're welcoming him. Brother Saul, we've seen throughout Acts how the gospel effectuates racial reconciliation, and now we see an example of the gospel effectuating relational reconciliation I heard once somebody say, I destroy my enemies when I make them my friends. That's what the gospel does. Destroys our enemies when we make them our friends. Verse 18, And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight, and he rose up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. And now for several days he was with the disciples here at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God of God. Saul, who hate-filled, educated, show off the best of the best, the most elite, the most erudite, the most sought after, is baptized into the very faith that he sought to destroy, and he's welcomed fully into the faith. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, Again, ironically, that was written by the Apostle Paul. Also by the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. we are baptized in one spirit. Saul was welcomed. He wasn't second rate. He wasn't second class. It took a while for people to get used to him. Fair enough. That's fine. <laughs> it took a while. Saul shows up and people are like, ah, I've heard about you. Ten feet distance, bro. But he is welcomed into God's family. And he puts on his mouth the very name that he tried to destroy, saying he is the son of God. This is the power of Jesus, and this is the power of the gospel that changes us, that causes us from being dead in our sins to being alive in Christ. We have a heart of stone, we're we're given a heart of flesh, and it's the name of Jesus, it's the power of Jesus, the influence of his Holy Spirit that continues to change us over the long haul of our life. We're saved by Jesus and we're sanctified by Jesus. and the power of Jesus, and the love of Jesus, and the grace of Jesus, in the tenacity, his, his, in, his intense desire to save is so great that even a guy like Saul is not outside of the realm of his grasp. He's not outside the bounds of, of Jesus' love and pursuit. If you're anything like me, maybe you've laid awake at night more than once recounting the things that you have done and you've bought into the quicksand of the lie that's from the devil saying you're, you're, you're no good. Jesus, is, you're, you're too far gone, you're too dirty, you're too sinful, you're too fill in the blank. Jesus can't use you, Jesus doesn't like you. Grace and salvation and, and, and forgiveness for everybody else but not for you. I have felt that, have you felt that? Saul is a perfectly good example of how not true that is. Because Jesus' love is that good, his grace is that great, and his cross is that comprehensive. The gospel is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone. Jesus is good. Amen?